So if you have your Bibles, I'd like to turn to Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2, which is where our text will be drawn from today, from Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 13. I promise I know where Matthew chapter 2 is. Beginning in verse 13. Now, when they, that's the Magi, the wise men, when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child, this is Joseph, and Joseph rose and took the child and his mother Mary by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken to the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. Verse 16. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. This then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children, She refused to be comforted because they are no more. May God add his blessing upon this, the reading of his holy and perfect word. Amen. Up on the screen, uh, we are showing two paintings. Uh, The one on your left, uh, these are probably the most disturbing paintings, in my opinion, of an event that I'm going to talk to you about today. The one on the left um, is entitled The Slaughter of the Innocents by Daniela de Volterra, uh, painted somewhere around 1557. If, if you like art, um, I would encourage you to pick up uh, the study guide, go to uh, your web browser and look this up and just look at the details. I remember the first time I saw this painting. This painting is at the Uffizi Gallery in Florence. If you ever go to Italy, I guess Rome's okay, but you really need to go to Florence because that's where all the great museums are. When I walked into the room where this painting is, it literally takes up an entire wall. It's absolutely huge. And uh, as I, I was in the room by myself, and as I walked in, and, and I don't mind telling you this, as I walked in, and I looked up at it, you can see it, forget 4D, I mean, it looks like it's giant D, I mean, because it's huge, and I literally lost it, I literally began to weep, because I, I could, as I was staring at it, I could hear the screaming of the women, of the mothers, I, I just can't tell you how unsettling this painting is, and sometimes we need to be unsettled. I haven't seen this other one, the one that's on your right. This one is uh, Peter Paul Rubens, uh, The Massacre of the Innocents, uh, painted somewhere around 1611, 1612, we're not really sure. It's on display at the Art Gallery of Ontario in Toronto. 
It's actually even more brutal. You can see to your right the man lifting the child to uh, slam its head against the pillar stone in the bottom right of the painting. It is, everybody's out, everybody, if you weren't ready to take out down your Christmas decorations, I guarantee you, you are now. You're going to go home, okay, the festive season is over. And there's a part of me that wonders why the church spends so much time and even why the gospel spends so much time talking about these horrific events. And it really supports the idea that as we think about the joy and the festivity and the beauty of the birth of Jesus Christ, there was some really horrific things that were going on around this birth. People who were utterly and completely innocent, these children under the age of two, um, really, in my opinion, were the first martyrs of the church. These are the first people who gave their life because of what Jesus Christ, uh, who Jesus Christ is and what he came to do. Um, now, if we stick with just the Bible here, just the scriptures in Matthew chapter 2, we have had some events that have happened. So pay attention that way next year at your Christmas party, you'll be able to answer all the, the questions right and, and you'll win the fruitcake for, for having won the little, little quiz. We start off with the visitation of the Magi, and now in the latter part of the chapter, we have what's called the flight of the Holy Family. That's Joseph, Mary, and Jesus, Jesus to Egypt. The slaughter of the innocents, and then finally in chapter 2, you almost want to just do a sigh of relief, whew, thank goodness, Herod's death. Now this is Herod the Great, or Herod the First. Uh, the study guide talks a little bit more about who Herod is. This is not the same Herod who uh, put to death uh, John the Baptist. That was Herod Antipas, uh, his son. Uh, but this guy, Herod, was an absolute nut job. And the study guy will give you a, a little fuller picture of who Herod is. Um, he did some things that history remembers quite fondly, but we Christians don't really think fondly of him. So I want to do, and, and uh, I, I want to go back for just a little bit and remind ourselves of some of the stuff that's happened that will help us understand uh, this text of the flight to Egypt and the slaughter of the innocents. Pastor Joe preached on the Magi last week. Uh, so I don't want to belabor this too much, but I do want to look at the people who are involved in this chapter 2 in this sequence of events that will help us understand what it is we have been called to as disciples of Jesus Christ. So let's look back at chapter 2, verse 1. Now, isn't it good to get those paintings off the screen? <laughs> now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, Wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. So first, what we have in chapter 2 is we have the wise men or the magi coming to Jerusalem. But notice what they're doing in chapter 2, verses 1 and the following. They're not going straight to Herod, as all of the movies portray them having done. They're asking folks on the street, verse 3, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. Now, I'm sure this did cause quite a stir in Jerusalem. I mean, you got these three interesting fellows from the east 
who knows how big their entourage was, probably all the way from Persia, acting like tourists, stopping people. Hey, we've come here to honor the new king that y'all have. Do you know where he is? And when Herod hears about this, and even Jerusalem, who incidentally hates Herod, verse 4, and assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, Herod inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. This is important. Notice here that Herod knows what the question being asked by the Magi really means. King of the Jews is what the Magi are asking for. Now, yeah, a little, little backstory here. You have to know that the Jews haven't had a king for some time, and it's only been recently that the Roman Senate, back in Rome, conferred upon Herod the title King of the Jews. Okay? Now, Herod knows what this title means, particularly to the Jewish people. Now, to the Romans, they don't understand it. Oh, you want to be king of the Jews? Okay, you can be king of the Jews. As long as you pay us your taxes and don't, don't rebel against the emperor, we call you whatever you want to be called. But to the Jews, that phrase, that term, that title carries a powerful meaning because to them, in their ears, it means that Messiah has come the christ whenever you read christ in the new testament that's nothing more than the greek translation to greek of the hebrew word meaning messiah that means revolution to the jewish listeners and the jewish people and everyone who has been a collaborator of rome well that that doesn't bode well for them. There's not a good future for them, including Herod himself. So, what do we have here? We have the Magi, we have Herod, and now we're introduced to the chief priests and the scribes. These are the three individuals, the three groups, if you will, that we learn that the Scriptures are seeking to lift up for our consideration. In many ways, these three individuals and these three groups speak to us about three kinds of disciples, three kinds of people who assess the message of the gospel, the message of Scripture, and react a particular way, and all three quite differently. And so I'd like to speak with you a little bit today about those three disciples. Now, this isn't new to me. This has actually been a significant teaching within the Protestant Reformation, begun by Martin Luther himself, as we, as Protestant Christians, as Christians who have rediscovered the sufficiency of Scripture, the authority of Scripture, and the sufficiency of the message that we are justified that is, we are saved by grace through faith in Christ and of no work of our own. The first of these disciples are the chief priests and the scribes. Now let me pause here for just a second. I'm going to be talking really hard about these three groups of people 
but I'm going to be, as best I can, confining my remarks solely to these three groups of people. Now, if you want to try to discern where you might fit, not your neighbor, that'd be judging. Not somebody down the street, that would be judging. But where you fit and your response, I think that would be an appropriate exercise. I've done the same thing myself as I wrote this. The first are the chief priests and the scribes. Now these are folks, well, like me, like our elders, like our Sunday school teachers, like our, like our life group leaders. These are folks that know and teach the scriptures to all, to everybody. But they are also the disciples who do not come to Jesus. That's the danger of those who are impressed with their own knowledge, isn't it? Sometimes our knowledge can lead to a hard heart. These chief priests and these scribes, they hear and they see these great events, these honest men from the east coming to seek Christ, Messiah, and these chief priests and scribes, are told that a star in the heavens testified to his birth, they themselves presumably have seen those strange celestial events. And what do they do? Do they laugh? Do they scoff? No. They go to the Scriptures. They test what they have heard by God's Word. And they themselves produced testimony from the scriptures to confirm what they've heard from the Magi. Since they were the priests and the most learned in God's word, they should have been the first who joyfully and eagerly hurried to Bethlehem. What kind of religious leader hears the stories and sees the testimony of these three people who have traveled, some historians say, years to see the Christ child and their physical response is to do nothing but to stay in the palace with Herod. Now I'm not too hard on them. They, after all, have been walking a line for years, perhaps all of their life. You know the line that I'm talking about, the line that all of us from time to time have to walk. They having to walk the line between Rome and the conquered. Between the military might of the world's greatest army and those to whom they have been called to serve by God, the people of God. They are having to walk this fine line between the demands of the government and for us perhaps the demands of culture and the perceived needs of the people who are suffering under the oppression of the Roman Empire and the oppression of Herod the Great. I wonder if they had been told that the Messiah was to be born in Persia, present-day Iran, would they have left Jerusalem to go and see? Maybe. Perhaps it's one thing to go and see God on our terms. It's another when we have to see or recognize that God has come to see us on our terms, isn't it? 
I remember the old preacher of my childhood. He did this to scare us. He would say from the pulpit, he'd say, if Jesus came to your home today, what would he think of the magazines on your coffee table? I always knew that that was when mom was going to go home and pitch stuff. But the truth is, the truth is, it's easier to come to God when we have some semblance of control over how that event and exchange happens is another thing to recognize and to accept that God has come to us. In the midst of our rebellion, in the midst of our brokenness, in the midst of our hurt, in the midst of our anger. Martin Luther wrote that these chief priests and scribes, quote, they feared Herod, who would surely have killed them if they had confessed that indeed Christ, that is Messiah, that is King of the Jews, had been born and their willingness to accept him as the king. Herod had already killed people before he executed his wife. He executed her brother, her grandfather, who had helped him become king, actually. And he had executed his mother-in-law. Okay, we'll just let that one sit. He killed three of his sons. What's a few more priests? What's a few more scribes? And because these priests and scribes feared death more than they loved their Lord and true king, and because of that, they were willing to remain loyal to a tyrant and the devil himself, Luther says. That is... These chief priests and scribes, rabbis were more interested in protecting their lifestyle, their position, their power, their prestige, than they were in accepting that indeed God's word had been validated and true and Messiah had come. These priests knew the scriptures, they believed the scriptures, they trusted the scriptures. But instead of receiving the birth of Christ with joy and humility, they looked at the Messiah with contempt. They were angry that Messiah had come. Obviously, that's the case. How do you know that, Pastor? Well, obviously. Well, for me, it's obvious. Because they threw their lot in with the one who had earthly power and influence. They decided to ally themselves with the one who would protect their way of life a way of life to which they had become accustomed. Because isn't it true that so many of us prefer the darkness we know than the light that we do not know? And Christ grew up among them entirely unknown by them. <clears throat> that, that, well, that's proved by God's Word. John 1, verse 11. He came to His own, and His own people did not receive Him. Again, later in 1 John 25-26, through 26, when these same religious leaders came to John the Baptist about where his authority comes to preach as he was preaching, we read, verse 25, they asked him, then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet? And John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These are disciples of Christ, disciples of Jesus Christ, 
who indeed know the truth, but have chosen not to confess it. Not defend it. And are therefore lost. As Christ says in Matthew 10, verses 32 through 33, So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. Sobering words. The second class of disciples are, well, Herod and his people. Herod searched the scriptures as well, believing that it was the truth. He believed that the scriptures were true. He believed that the Messiah was to be born in Bethlehem. And he believed that the one who was born in Bethlehem was indeed the true king of the Jews. Hold on to that. Why would I say that? Because otherwise, he would have dismissed the whole thing with a harumph and forgotten about it. But he wasn't. He was concerned. He was frightened. I'm convinced that Herod believed the Scriptures to be the Word of God, which must be fulfilled, and that in Christ's birth, the work of God was revealed. Otherwise, he would not have done what he did, slaughtering children under the age of two, hoping he would have killed this potential rival for the title King of the Jews. Herod is the kind of disciple who set himself intentionally and directly against God's word and work And he actually thinks he can thwart. He actually thinks he can prevent. He actually thinks that he has the power to contradict that which God had spoken and done. In a word, Herod believed that he could go to war with God and actually win. He so believed the Scriptures that he told the Magi, to diligently search for the babe for the sole purpose of destroying God's Messiah. You see, Herod was the kind of disciple who believed that God cannot lie to his his testament. And that which God spoke would come to pass. And therefore, Herod thought God had to be stopped. Have you ever heard of such incredibly foolish arrogance that we can deliberately ignore and even contradict God's word and assume that we'll be victorious? And yet history is full of such people. And they are generally the rulers of nations who are interested in their power rather than their people. Or the upper class and wealthy who are determined to keep their place in society at the expense of others. And from time to time, they may be all of us. 
who ignore the tears of the widows, the cries of children who deserve life, the imprisoned who are desperate for redemption, the stranger who is lost in a world foreign to her, the neighbor who spoke a foolish word but is forever answered by us with a deaf ear, the spouse who is left to weep alone because we have said that our love has simply grown cold. It's really easy to make Herod the antagonist of the story. It's easy to make Herod the black-hatted bad guy, corrupted by sin and rebellion, which he was, but fail to see our own need for forgiveness, our own need to have our eyes open to the Jesus who is in our midst, who we sometimes don't know. The third class of disciple are the wise men, the magi, who left their country, their home, and their possessions, forsaking all in order to find Christ. They may not have been able to articulate the doctrine of the deity of Christ. They did not know their scriptures well enough to know that right there in their Bibles, the ones that they had, they probably had a copy of Micah chapter 5, verse 2, which would have answered their question of where... Christ was to be born but at the same time they represent the people who fearlessly confess Christ and the truth and you know what's so amazing is is those folks may not be able to articulate the fullness of the truth that stands the test of scrutiny but they know their Jesus is real they know their God is real They know who the truth is. And they come to that truth with hearts that are open with a willingness to learn. Herod stands for those who persecute and destroy the former. And yet the Messiah comes for all of us. Here's the gospel, brothers and sisters. It's real easy to to say, that's that person and there's where they were wrong and that's that person that's where they were wrong and there's those people and even though they didn't do anything wrong they're not quite as filled with the truth as i am it's easy to do that but here's the gospel jesus christ came for all three of them he came for the chief priests who were afraid who were not bold enough to live courageously. Jesus Christ came for the Magi who are seeking Him with everything that they have. And are you ready? And most astonishingly to me, Jesus Christ comes for Herod who hates Him and everything He stands for. And yet, Jesus' love for Herod is why He came. And as hatred does, hatred demands the sacrifice of the innocent. And here, that painting yet again. You know what caused this? A hunger for power. You know what caused this? A hatred for others. You know what caused this? a fear of our own death. And all of those things are terrible demons that will consume us, and ultimately they consume everyone around us.
And Herod's last years, according to other sources, not the Bible, Herod suffered from constant cramping all over his body, weakness, sores on his extremities that wouldn't heal, a condition that, according to some, points to a severe condition of arteriosclerosis. We have physicians in the midst. They can make their own diagnosis. But his body was racked by pain. He had to repress a revolt, became involved in a quarrel with his Nabataean neighbors just to the southwest of his kingdom on the southeast side, I'm sorry, southeast side of the Jordan River. And finally, Herod lost the favor of the emperor, Augustus. He was in great pain. He was dealing with mental and physical disorders. He altered his will three times and finally disinherited and killed his firstborn, who would have been his legitimate successor, Antipater. And most scholars believe that his order to kill the children in Bethlehem occurred very shortly before he eventually died, after an unsuccessful attempt to commit suicide. This man, Herod, died railing against life desperately trying to hold on to something that was fleeting and throwing away that which was eternal. This is another one of my favorite paintings. It's painted by the late 19th century painter Edwin Longsdus Long, and it's entitled Anno Domini. It's a painting of the Holy Family's flight into Egypt, and it's popularly referred to by most folks as uh, uh, Long's painting of the flight into Egypt. But it's not what Long entitled it. He entitled it Anno Domini. You probably know what the words Anno Domini mean. In the year of our Lord. Today is January 2nd, 2022, Anno Domini, in the year of our Lord. And I think it is a fitting reminder that as Christ came for the chief priests, as Christ came for the Magi, as Christ came for Herod, he came also for you and for me. But what about those innocent children, Pastor? Well, you know, the scandal of suffering for the sake of Christ is perhaps the most perplexing concept to our human minds. We don't understand that. But I can say this, only in Christ, only in Christ, does death equal victory and weakness equal strength. Long before Christ would say to his disciples this statement from Matthew 10, verse 39, whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for me for my sake, will find it. These children were already resting secure in the arms of their Savior, the infant child Jesus. And while the wisdom of God cannot be comprehended in this slaying of the holy innocence, what remains is the child who lived, the child who died, the child who rose for all in order that the promise of the resurrection would belong to these holy martyrs and all who have been baptized in his name. This 
painting that you just saw is entitled The Year of the Lord. It is your year. To join those holy innocents and to rest in the arms of the Savior. This may seem strange to you, but I hope you will indulge me. Roughly 2,022 years ago, an unnumbered group of mothers watched their children be murdered. Would you stand in a moment of silence to remember those innocent who were killed by Herod, if you're able? may be seated. It is often said that the church is built on the blood of the martyrs. It began with those little children and would ultimately lead to Jesus himself and then to Stephen and the disciples and the old untold number of Christians in the circuses and coliseums, at the mouths of raging lions and bears, at the spear of Roman centurions and gladiators, Christians throughout the centuries, even to this century, have given their lives because of the truth of the gospel. It is worth staking your life on as well. And it may require more than just subtle dismissals in public and popular culture. It may be even more than the ridicule that so many believers receive from governments and people of power. It may demand your life someday as well. And that is what I'm inviting you to. To commit your lives. Not just your time, your talent, and your treasure. But your blood. Your sweat. And your tears. To Jesus Christ. If you could answer yes to this question, do you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and do you accept Him as Lord and Savior? After the service, elders will be up at the front here. I pray that you'll come and share with them that you've made that decision to follow Jesus Christ. If you're online with us today, I pray that you'll click that button saying that you, this day, have received that gift through faith that Jesus Christ has given to you.
Let us pray. Merciful God, for those this day who in person or online have made the decision to receive fully the gift you give to us through Jesus Christ, and by faith we have received the mantle of your love and forgiveness, we pray, merciful God, that you will call us into the fullness of what it means to serve for your glory. We thank you, Lord, for the courage and bravery of our brothers and sisters in Christ who have paid the ultimate price. But we thank you most of all for Jesus Christ. For in his death and in his resurrection, the chasm of sin and death has been bridged. And you have declared victory over the hosts of darkness and sin. In Jesus' name, amen.